So the, today the largely of the kind of uh, community efforts appreciate the cooperation support from the monastic community and as a, as a sangha, as a communi- community, then it, we all contribute to it. And, and this is, uh, has its own value to work as a community rather than uh, always on from the individual. So it's like, um, you know, noticing the, the difference we have our preferences and opinions about things, but uh, one thing about you know conventional forms and community life, we we can't always do everything the way that you you really want to do it or what you what you particularly like. There's always a level of surrender, conformity for the welfare of the whole. So this is, you know, the individual, sometimes we have to give up our own personal desires and preferences for the welfare of the whole, of the community. And sometimes we need to emphasize our own personal needs. Uh, this is this is not a matter of prescription, uh, but of uh, just knowing ourselves, knowing how to cooperate, when to assert, when to cooperate, when to surrender, when to make a stand and so forth. These are, you can't, if one chooses conformity only, then one becomes institutionalized. If we just choose, you know, to assert our individuality at all costs, then we find out we can't live with anyone. Uh, We're a pain in the neck because we always have to assert our opinion or have our own way. The main point is uh, this awareness, being able to observe the result. Each one of us has our own karma to deal with. You know, there's no two people the same. So we, we learn from uh, you know, whatever we do, our skillful or unskillful actions, we learn from both. It's always, uh, you know, good for for many of us too to uh, think of the community above our own needs, because there's, there's a tendency to uh, put oneself first. And that uh, has its, you know, it's rather still kind of immature, like a a child uh, thinks of itself first, and then as we mature, we we start thinking of others, uh, caring about the welfare of others. During this, the morning reflections, and that this is meant to be. Uh, Encouragement. I talk about encouraging, empowering, arousing confidence in you because I found over the years how, you know, the Western uh, Buddhists tend to, we're so caught in our own views and opinions and limited to our own uh, ideas uh, that we get from others that we lack sometimes real faith and real trust in our own ability. I know speaking for myself is the the tendency, the person that's based very much on the critical faculty of noticing weakness, exaggerating faults, weaknesses in myself to where this would limit me. Lack of trust, always uh, seeing, uh, noticing what I don't like or don't want, which tends to dominate conscious experience. So then when this, uh, this encouragement to examine the, 
the, the basis of practice, the sense of I've got to practice in order to become, to make myself better or get enlightened, is uh, that's how we all start usually. We, we don't, I don't know anyone that started from, from a wisdom position, but mainly from the idea that that one, you know, I need something I don't have, or I've got to learn how to do something with myself in order to become better person, or become enlightened, or whatever. And then we read the scriptures, and we hear what others say, views and opinions, about you know development, progress, stages, techniques, different forms of Buddhism different types, different characters. Uh, so our discriminative uh, faculties, which are all already highly developed, are set in, you know, continually uh, encouraged. And what we tend to lack is a real confidence or trust in ourselves. Not in the, not in the, what you think you are. Not in the kind of ego or the self-views you hold. But in this, in this is something the Buddha said, this is, this is a teaching for manusia, for human beings. This is a teaching, it's aimed at us. You know, it's also tewa manusanang for tevadas too. So if you're an evada, it's also a good practice. But most of us identify with the minutious position, <clears throat> the human. It's easy for us to think in psychological terms about what my needs are and my, you know, how I've got to uh, deal with my neuroses and my unresolved conflicts and my this and that. So we we have a whole culture of uh, psychology also that that we that influences how we see ourselves in the world that we relate to nothing i'm not condemning this or criticizing but but encouraging you to awaken to you know the, even the uh, psychological perspectives you have about what you are what you need just so that you begin to to observe, you know, whatever you grasp, whatever identity, whatever opinion you hold, it's not that it, you're grasping something wrong, but it's in the grasping out of ignorance that the, is the cause of suffering. So that the awakened consciousness, you now it's a simple matter of beginning to really reflect on what you think you are, say on Sakya Ditti, starting with the first fetter, or the ego, or the self-personality view. So just a simple examination of, of noticing that what I think I am, the common attitude or assumptions I have about me as a person, and the awareness of that. So that, that's my encouragement. I can't do it for you. <laughs> Because if I tell you anything, then it's still getting information from outside. So what I'm trying to do is encourage rather than, than advise or tell you what to do. So starting out, to, to, so you can know Sakya Ditti, so that as you investigate that, just that concept of Sakya Ditti, personality view, The sense of yourself as a person, as a body, as a, the characteristics, as qualities, and all that. Then you you have to use the language, your thinking. You have views. You have uh, qualities. Uh, you rate things in terms of uh, good, better, best, bad, worse, worst. But that which is aware of when you're doing this whatever you think you are or believe you are, there's awareness when you, when you kind of switch on the 
floodlight of awareness, you can, uh, there's an observer of the self, the self-view. So Sakyaditi can't observe the Buddha, but the Buddha knows Sakyaditi. So in this Bhutto, this, this knowing, knowing Sakyaditi is Sakyaditi, it's like this, it is, uh, you know, it's memory, it's uh, views, opinions about oneself, one's attachment to memories, identities, and so forth. And in order to, to discern the difference between pure consciousness and consciousness in which we're grasping uh, perceptions or sakyaditi, that's what the examination is, you know, what, that which sees sakyaditi, that which knows sakyaditi, knows the, the thoughts about myself, is the sakyaditi or it, it's language, it's a habit, it's a habit, sakyaditi is a habit based on memory, on concepts, on perceptions, on beliefs. But the awareness of it is natural, isn't it? It's not something that, that you create or that you can claim, but you can use. See, so if you're always operating from the, from not being mindful, then we do. We live our lives always in these shadowy places of self and, and um, it's like always, you know, caught in the movement and change of the conditions. We have no refuge. We're merely helpless victims of conditioning. So the Buddha or the enlightened one, the Supatipanna, the, uh, the one who's awakened, who sees things as they are, the one who knows, the Buddha sees the, the Dhamma, the way it is. So the Sakyaditi is then seen in terms of Dhamma, which it is what it is. You know, so this isn't, this isn't judging it good or bad, right or wrong, but a conditioned phenomena is like this. The knowing of conditioned phenomena is the Nitya Dukkanata. So that's where even the dark side or the shadow side or whatever you want to call it, the, the things you're most afraid of, the fears and, and uh, repressed, resentments and anger and selfishness and conceits and that they're seen in terms of Dhamma rather than in terms of I shouldn't or I should I shouldn't be selfish I shouldn't shouldn't carry resentment I should be forgiving and like we we all know how we should be as an ideal And I know how I'd like to be, you know, if I could create myself into an ideal Buddhist monk, I know how I would like to be. But that's still Sakyaditi, wanting to be something, uh, you know, having some idea of what I would like to be, and then uh, not being able to live up to the high standard of what I would like, then I, then the tendency to feel unworthy, uh, unworthy of the alms, unworthy of respect, not a good monk, maybe not capable, maybe too uh, neurotic, psychologically uh, undeveloped, too immature, all kinds of ways I could describe myself through dwelling on uh, the things I don't like that I see that arise and cease in my consciousness. We're not trying to, to become Buddhas or become Arahants or become Bodhisattvas, but 
and the encouragement is to awaken to see Dhamma which is not about me or you becoming anything. When I look back at my life as a Buddhist monk, you know, I can see I'm a better person, I'm a happier person on a personal level than I was 42 years ago. So just on the level of conditioning, living the holy life, living within the monastic form, training, even on a Sakyaditi level, it, it has, I have become a nicer person than I was, say, 40 years ago. So that's a good result, but it's still on a personal level. So doing good and taking responsibility for action and speech and living a, in a moral way and, and developing virtuous qualities certainly is praiseworthy and encouraged in uh, Buddhism. But the ultimate goal is enlightenment. And in order to appreciate what that really is, then it's not in trying to become better as one's goal, but awakening to this desire to become, desire to get rid of. This kind of teaching is, is, is very simple actually, but it is going against the whole ethos and uh, programming of modern society. A totally different take than anything else in our culture, our society. Western society is very much based on becoming, on the belief in progress, development, progress, personal change, uh, rights and assertion. In the modern time is one of now where we think of ourselves and we need to express and assert and make ourselves into uh, a strong wise person, successful, confident, normal. Now the emphasis is very much on individuality and attaining and achieving self-improvement, books on self-improvement, self, you know, usually bestsellers, how to make myself better. So the society is very much one that sees things in terms of development, progress. So I have progressed on a personal level, living this life as a Buddhist monk. As I said before, I've become, uh, according to my estimation anyway, a better person than I was. So there's success there, on just on the personal level. Being a better person, still there's still the doubt, the Sakya Ditti, the Sila Bhattabharamasa influencing occasions, and then there's dread and worry as a part of it. Uh, you know, because as you get to my age and you're feeling the results of, of old age, the memory's not so good. You know, you, you hear about all kinds of senility problems and Alzheimer's and arthritis and, and you, you know, you know, all kinds of gruesome stories or even know people who quite bright stars in their youth and their middle age and then as they get older they become problems, senile, crazy, neurotic. And on a self level this is what we don't want and none of us want to to have dementia or senility or Alzheimer's or you know we'd like keep our kind of bright mind and healthy body till we die on a personal level that's what I'd like so this is uh, personality wants the best and doesn't want the worst and old age of course brings 
is it closer, the idea of dying is now much more real for me. Even though on one level you, I could definitely say, you know, like we all, we are going to die, I could die any time. You know, when you're a child, when you're whatever, die the, tomorrow. Walk out the gate and get hit by a, a lorry or something. It's possible, but those are more, you know, intellectual possibilities. But when you, when you realize that physically you're moving very rapidly towards the grave, and uh, the death is, uh, is something we don't, the Sakyaditi can't cope with. Sakyaditi is built on, on uh, being alive and perceptions and identities with the body. Try to imagine death. And when you try to imagine what it's like when you're dead, you, you think of yourself, maybe your personality still living. You think when people offer dana and for the welfare of the dead, they, they still have, offering it to memories of dead people. Because that's what we know, we have memories of people who were once alive. And we think of them is dead now, but then they're dead, and, and we still think of them as, as people, as some kind of person, or soul maybe, or spirit. And so this is, uh, because death, physical death is something we can't really imagine. We can fantasize, you know, but it's always up to taking the fantasies of of death, but it's always with conditions that we've acquired when we're alive. The, the, the perceptions, the thoughts, the assumptions, the beliefs. So this knowing of conditioned phenomena, it's really looking at the way, you know, at conditions as arising and ceasing, and no longer needing to identify, needing to describe, needing to define, needing, needing to believe in anything. But in awakened consciousness, or the deathless, recognizing, realizing Amravati, or the deathless. When you do this, then the deathless the unconditioned is real. There is the unborn, uncreated. And then there is the condition, the born, the created. Now that's all the Sakyaditi Silapata Bharamasa Vichikita. So in pointing to that, the unborn, unconditioned, using the words Buddha Dhamma Sangha no longer in, in terms of historical perceptions like the Buddha taught the Dhamma 2,551 years ago in India, but seeing it in terms of, of the here and now, awakened consciousness from a human individual, seeing the way it is, the Dhamma, the conditions arising, ceasing, and recognizing, realizing the deathless, the unconditioned, unborn. That's what awakened consciousness is the gate or the gate to the deathless. Amadasa Dawara the deathless door, deathless gate. Aparuta desang amatasa tawara. Tawara is a door, a gate, and then the amatasa, like Amravati, means a deathless gate. Gate to the deathless. So the gate to the deathless is open. And so that's what I'm pronouncing.
Uh, it's not a matter of belief. You know, I don't ask you to believe this, but but it is a something that that is quite inspiring. And and if you begin to contemplate it, you, you begin to realize it or recognize it, not because you you go along with what I'm saying, but because you actually have awakened. There's an awakened recognition. This is it. And then you have perspective on the death, on what arises and ceases. So you're noticing, like when when thoughts or feelings cease in consciousness, It's peaceful. You know, as long as you fill your consciousness, always creating new things, new thoughts, new ideas, new emotions, new experiences, always distracting yourself, running around, thinking, planning, plotting, worrying, dreading, and all the other things that human beings tend to do. Then by the time death comes, you have no merely if you're a helpless in bedridden situation, you just worry, dread, fear, regret, remorse, hope, want to hope God forgives you for all the wrongs you've done and so forth. So that this is this is all we know how to do because we, our body's going to die and we don't know what's going to happen. on the personal level, what happens to the personality? What happens when there's no personality? When there's no sakyaditi? When there's nobody? And this you can actually witness to with mindfulness in the present while your body's still breathing and sitting, standing, walking, or lying down. When your personality ceases, is consciousness. And if you're not caught in that habitual kind of obsessiveness to, to seek rebirth or become, get the next one going, you become aware of the peacefulness of pure consciousness, the stillness. So when we chant, Anicca Vata Sankara Ubatavaya Tamino this is standard chant and, and when somebody dies we go and we have Anicca Vadasankara all conditions are impermanent they arise and they pass away and their passing is peace so then with this peace is here and now it's not we're not waiting for for our physical, we didn't wait for physical death, we're awakening to the way it is, to Dhamma, rather than to the cultural prejudices, conditions, attitudes that we might have, fears that we might have around death. Because before we die, we, we've already experienced death. Die before you die. And this is what mindfulness is doing. You're letting the ego die. You're noticing the death of yourself. You're beginning to be aware of the ego arising and see the sense of yourself as a physical body in whatever way you, you conceive, perceive yourself, when you, with mindfulness, then you can actually witness the death of self. But then, it, then there's the rebirth. I mean, if we're not aware, we're always being reborn mentally, emotionally. We're afraid of that, of, of not being anybody. We find that emotionally very threatening, very frightening. And in meditation, sometimes people do, when, they, when their ego starts dropping away and there's nothing left, they get terrified. Because emotionally, 
emotionally we're, we're not ready for that. We see only our feeling of confidence only comes through affirmations of the, on the ego level. In the, our sense of safety and confidence, everything's okay. It's going to be all right. Calm down. We love you. Everything's okay. Everything's going to be all right. There's a little problem now, but it'll go away. We, we like um, help each other. So we, when we're in distress or loss or fear or anxiety or tragedy, we have ways of trying to calm ourselves down a bit. Because, you know, we live in a universe that we don't know what's going to happen. And it is a mystery from this helpless little body sitting here looking out at the vast universe. It's a rather vulnerable condition, old, old man looking out at the stars in the heavens, the moon, the sun in the sky. And then they've got all these telescopes now. They look out vast into galaxies. Beyond, you know, they go on and on and on and on and on. Somebody gave me a fossil the other day, beautiful uh, fossil that's 350 million years old. Some kind of creature, like uh, some kind of lived in the water, like a snail or something, or ammonite. There's uh, two kinds of fossils in this rock, petrified into this stone. 350 million years ago. And then, you know, I'm only 74 years old. <laughs> so I told somebody, it makes me feel young again. <laughs> but that, for a human, just try to conceive that, you know, 350 million years. That, you know, yeah, for a human individual, isn't it? It's mind-boggling. You can't imagine what was going on 350 million years ago here in Hertfordshire. <laughs> was this fossil from Hertfordshire? I don't I think it was from Africa, actually. <laughs> but it doesn't matter. This is, this is the perspective of a conditioned mind, a human mind whose perceptual abilities are limited to the age of a human lifetime, we do have a sense of history and evolution, so we have perceptions of 350 million years ago. But even the time of the Buddha, which is not that long ago, 2,551 years ago, that seems long ago to me, on the perceptual level, isn't it? But compared to 350 million years, that's nothing much, isn't it? Just like a few minutes ago. <laughs> Just recognizing how limited we are on that level to know and understand the mystery that we're experiencing. And because mysteries tend to frighten us, we, we confine ourselves to oftentimes to trivialities, to the known, to hearsay, to gossip. The celebrity culture, talking about Britney Spears and people like that, you know, who don't mean anything. Not very inspiring or intelligent people, and yet the mind can be caught up in gossip around silly people <laughs> and and uh, this is our culture you know we can spend hours gossiping about uh, you know what Britney Spears is doing or somebody else because this is something we can know we can understand mental breakdown divorce uh, any form of depravity, drug addiction, immorality, sexual activity, 
there's always this sense of, you know, admiring celebrity. The idea of being a celebrity is, is one of the goals in life now for the youth. Meaning that you don't have to have accomplished anything but become somebody that people talk about. <laughs> and so, not that you, have, you needn't be talented in any way or have achieved anything, just have somehow make it into the media. And so this is the way of blinding ourselves to the mystery by dwelling on the trivial or the foolish. Then the future is the unknown, so we can imagine all kinds of, of uh, scenarios about future. What's going to be the future of Amravati? When Ajahn Samedo drops dead, what's going to happen? You know, will Amravati survive? Will Theravada Buddhism develop in the, in the Western world? Or is this just a kind of bleep in history? Suddenly there's this sudden interest and it'll just, you know, like a bubble burst and then there's nothing left. Could, couldn't be, might be. Or Maitreya Buddha might appear, or the Messiah. But the future then is, uh, we like to speculate about the future or the past. How many of you are fascinated with past lives? Interesting, you know, to find out what you were before you were in this incarnation. This moment here and now isn't demanding attention. Unless there, you know, there's some urgent need to pay attention. But so much of our life, the here and now, is we're, we're always operating, doing, thinking, planning for the future, or remembering the past. But to be fully present here and now, this is, this is not part of our cultural expectation. When we talk about mystery, it's what we don't know, isn't it? You can't quite get it. You can't quite pin it down. You have no way of defining it. Your mind is left in a state of uncertainty, unknowing. And that's what consciousness is. It's a knowing of not knowing. We're not, you know, pure consciousness doesn't isn't looking for anything, it just knows it's like this at this moment. But it's not making any comment about it as good, bad, right or wrong, it's this way. And then this beautiful statement about the unborn, uncreated, then the, the awakening to that, Sati Sampachanya Sati Panya is like this. Now when I'm doing this, you know, I notice there's awareness, sound of silence, attention. It's like this, but I'm not, I'm not defining anything. I'm not telling you how it is, what it's like, just pointing to it. It's like not knowing. Because the thinking mind stops and it isn't, isn't searching for something to think about or figure out. It's just this pure consciousness is this way. Constantly referring, reminding of ourselves, remembering this. To keep Buddha Dhamma Sangha in mind all the time. Keep reminding yourself when daily life when you get caught up into worldly activities and relationships and that, determine to use uh, the concepts Buddha Dhamma Sangha as a reminder to just stop, stop. Even the thought of stopping is helpful. And just being caught in the endless cycle and reaffirming the cycle, reinforcing it. monastic life, you know, this is the, the really the whole purpose of being samanas. 
and it's a expedient means where our sole duty really is to constantly remind the Buddha Dhamma Sangha. Awake, aware of Dhamma, the way it is. In whatever we're doing, whether we're washing the dishes, sewing robes, eating our food, or whatever, putting on the robes, living here in a community. It's not to develop community skills and social harmony. It's for this. This is the sole purpose. Now, I'm not against social harmony or community skills, but this is not the priority. This is not what, we're not here to have a successful monastic community as a goal. If that happens, fine. But the the emphasis, the whole, the whole purpose is to realize Nibbāna, free from ignorance, end of suffering. We need to remind ourselves because the worldly conditions can easily take us over. Worldly conditions always have, I mean, they can be very urgent very important. We have crises. We have uh, tragedies. We have, you know, all kinds of problems that need to be resolved and, and hurt feelings and disappointments and disillusionments and misunderstandings. You know, all kinds of things have this sense of almost panic and hysteria. You know, the worldly thing can really wind you up and we've, we've got to do something. We've got to protect the Dhamma against those Buddhists that aren't really Buddhists. So you talk to these, they, I think in the Buddhist circles these days, there are certain groups of Buddhists in this country that other Buddhists think are not really Buddhists and don't want them as a part of this umbrella organization. They're not real Buddhists, and one can get very strong in this feeling. One can get very righteous and indignant and very important about keeping the purity and the true teaching. What is a Buddhist? And uh, keep the five precepts. If you don't keep the five precepts, you're not a Buddhist. You've got to believe in Buddha Dhamma Sangha. You've got to believe in karma, the law of karma and no self. And this is what extremism it moves into fanaticism, into strong positions. Now, awareness of that is not fanatical. Is it? it can be aware of strong emotions, of um, strong beliefs and views about others and other groups. It's like this, feeling that this particular group of so-called Buddhists are not real Buddhists is like this. When I can switch on the awareness to my own prejudices, it's different than if I just follow them and, and operate from my prejudices. I'm here to preserve the purity of Theravada Buddhism at all costs you know, then I'm bound to a perception. Which means that anything that it doesn't quite fit into that perception is considered something to protect yourself from, to condemn, to excommunicate, to reject. But switching on this light of awareness, then you can see the suffering of holding to strong views, being caught in uh, fanatical viewpoints, important causes, blaming others, trying, wanting to annihilate the enemy, take revenge, punish the wicked. Or we can be just so idealistic and so goody-good, we, we must all love each other and never quarrel and and we must always help each other, live in harmony, 
and uh, we'll always be here for each other as a monastic community. I'm always here for you. And no matter you're going through any problem, I want you to know I'm here for you, no matter how anguished your life might be. And then we, we get into that kind of mental state, which is nicer than the other. It's still full of sakya ditti and good intention without turn, switching on the light of awareness. So this encouragement to uh, consider, what is the priority? What, you know, I think, why am I a Buddhist monk? What is the point? What, what is the Vinaya for? What, how to use it? How to live this life so that, so that I become some kind of professional Buddhist monk, some kind of ajahn and teacher? I believe in the tradition and I have maybe good intentions of preserving a fine old tradition so for the next generation. It could be very altruistic. But when you really contemplate the, the Buddha was pointing at, the Four Noble Truths, Supatipano. What Supatipano, or one who practices in the right way, is this priority, awakened consciousness, recognizing it and living it, being this pure awareness. cultivating it in daily life. So no matter how many times you get lost or overwhelmed with the world, there's always a moment in the way we catch ourselves. I can be, you know, thinking, oh, there's so many problems and this and that. What are we going to do about this? And what are we going to do about that? And then I catch, you know, this tendency to get caught in in being worried about the problems of the society I'm living in. See what I'm doing. Then from this point, you know, expanding that more and more. This is how I've used the sound of silence. So the sound of silence stops the, the proliferating thinking I sustain that, this silence or this stillness. Notice it, I'm resting in it. So just training oneself in daily life to do this, you know, in little ways. You don't always have to be successful with it, not a matter of success, it's a matter of just doing it. You get back into how successful am I in doing this and it's Sakyaditi again. So there's no thing about being successful or a failure, but trusting this. The gate to the deathless is open. This is it. Trust it. And then uh, more and more that sense of faith increases because as you trust it, then you, you begin to have the insights. You begin to really notice things as they are. You've got these excellent, skillful means the Buddha gave for examining, looking at, at the same thing and from slightly different angles. Suffering and the end of suffering. The unconditioned and the conditioned. And just, you know, the monastic reflections, like we say, the four requisites. This can be Sakya Diti. I should be content with the four requisites. We can feel guilty when we aren't content with the four requisites. Resentment arises or we're trying desperately to be content. You can't make yourself content through the Sakya Diti. You can't make yourself, in. you can kind of act the role maybe of being contented but it's 
false and after a while you, you rebel against it. You can't stand trying to act contented all the time. Uh, you know, and being so good about everything. But you, you know, you can be aware of discontentment. Now awareness of discontentment, of self, of selfishness, of different forms of greed, hatred and delusion, of whatever. Being aware of that and seeing it in terms of Dhamma, then contentment will, will come naturally, not through Sakyaditi or the holding an idea of it or what you should or shouldn't be. But just being more aware of discontentment and not judging it, not seeing it as, as my fault, as some, my, you know, I'm not contented and I should be kind of thing, but seeing it, it is like this, feeling resentful, and discontented and angry and second class and unappreciated and so forth. It's like this. And then the sound of silence, the background of my discontentment. So I'm, I'm not proliferating, blaming it on anything, just a witnessing the feeling, the, the emotional feeling, the mood of being discontented and resentful like this. Welcoming, embracing this, allowing it to be what it is, in other words. Open to it, feeling angry and resentful like this. I can be aware of, of lingering kind of feelings in the body or in consciousness. As you patiently forbear them, they, they cease. The end of suffering is this. And then contentment comes not through an act of will, but through understanding. So when I say, you should be content with the four requisites. <laughs> I mean, that doesn't help you, does it? That just makes you feel you're not very good samana. Or, or you start resenting the idea that this preaching all the time about how you should be. And you're trying to, to live up to all these high principles. And, and then somebody shouts, you should be content. You shouldn't always be trying to get better things. You're always wanting something new or better and you're never content. You should be. And then you feel put down and scolded. And it's true, we should all be content <laughs> on that level. But that doesn't help, does it? For me to say how you should be. You already know how you should be. But to, to you know, so there's this contentment with the four requisites is not an imperative. It's merely a, a, another perception that we can use for awareness. Awareness of being discontented with the requisites. Feeling unfulfilled by monastic life is like this. Hating monastic life is like this. So we have a right to resent and hate and and criticize, but we're not operating from that position, but reflecting on it. Attachment to resentment, to guilt, to anger, rage, jealousy. It's like this. So our priority then for the holy life is this awareness, cultivating developing, and this is what pawana. This is what, what where pawana is, it's always from samaditi. It's not doing meditation methods, you know, doing this type of method or that type of method, or, but it is cultivating, developing awareness from samaditi, or right understanding. So right understanding, samaditi, not, doesn't come through sakyaditi. Because you might have a 
good intellectual grasp of scripture doesn't mean that you have samaditi. One can be proud of one's scriptural knowledge, be very, you know, have it all nicely locked away in your brain, all about Buddhism and Pali language, Sanskrit. But samaditi is through insights and through seeing the causes of suffering and the end of suffering. The origin and the cessation. There's the Sumutaya and Niroda, second and third noble truths. Samuntaya Saja is the causes of the origin of suffering is due to this attachment to conditions, to desire, out of ignorance. Insight, letting go. Once you see that what attachment, what Ubadana is, then letting go of desire. <laughs> is not annihilating it, but you have to understand no desire to let go of it. <clears throat> Otherwise you form a desire to let go of desire. And you go around in circles with that one. And then the end of desire, desire that has arisen in the present, will cease if you're patient with it, if you recognize it. Any desire you have right now if you're patient and willing to bear with it, it'll cease. The end of desire, end of suffering, cessation or niroda. So these are these are continuous reflections in terms of using these Dhamma teachings for direct knowing. There is the unborn, uncreated, unformed, unconditioned. And because there is the unborn, uncreated, unformed, unconditioned, there is escape. There is the escape from the born, the created, the formed, the conditioned. So that escape then is through sati sampachanya, sati panya. It's not running away. It's not like running away from it, it's understanding. In, in this way, there's nothing to fear. Death is nothing to fear. Once you, once you understand the nature of conditioned phenomena, then there's nothing to fear. Because it's when we don't understand conditioned phenomena that we're frightened. Sakyaditi is, you know, I'm this physical body and it's going to die and I don't know what's going to happen. Where will I go when I... What happens to you when you die? The thinking mind then goes quite silent. And then anything can happen. You know, you can imagine heaven, hell, or, or you believe maybe oblivion. Once you're dead, you're dead, that's it. But you don't know. You don't know that. You might believe in oblivion. That's another concept. So, this awakened consciousness, you know, this is life. This is not about dying and oblivion and annihilation. And we, we oftentimes oppose uh, life with the word death. But in Dhamma, we use born, birth and death. What is born dies. Awareness then brings us into full consciousness, universal consciousness, deathless reality. And that is beyond imagination, but you can recognize it in this way. Don't try to figure it out. Trust yourself to just know it. It's like this. It's nothing fantastic or absolutely blissful or anything. It's, it's just this. It's very simple, very real. Always here and now. 
and the conditions that we're experiencing now, once we cultivate this, develop, then this is the reality. It's a stronger sense than emotional identities with the conditions. The Sakya Diti falls away, it doesn't mean much. Or Sila Patabaramasa, or the, or the thoughts, the thinking process, views and opinions, ideas, beliefs and all that. They're, they're no longer the conditions we believe and grasp and struggle with because we've awakened to Dhamma, to the truth of the way it is. The, even though the formal retreat, uh, community retreat is ended, this is not the end of Sati Sampachanya, I hope. And the things that happen, you know, disrobings of monks or nuns or comings and goings, we all practice with it to see the way of how things affect us. Faith or trust is or suspicion, or disillusionment, or despair, or doubt, or you know how you want to blame the the tradition, blame whatever you know it's somebody's fault. If people wouldn't disrobe, if everything had been perfect, they would be fully content within the monastic life. It's due to the imperfections of Theravada Buddhism and the Sangha that monks and nuns disrobe. I'm not defending the tradition and saying, but but notice this wanting to blame. Maybe we think the convention is the important thing. But the convention is a skillful means how we use this convention. You know, is it through Sakya Ditti, through desire that we're using the convention? Or are we actually learning how to use the convention for liberation? And that's the challenge we all face. How to use this convention for liberation. Not for, not for perpetuating the convention or defending it or proving it as a waste of time or forming views and opinions or trying to convert people to it or whatever. It's things we like or don't like about it, like any convention any culture, any person. Do you like somebody else, even your best friend, totally in every possible way? There's certain irritating habits <laughs> your mother and father have, or your best friend, or your dog or cat, or whatever. I mean, it, the head monk, head nun, nothing is, is going to be perfectly satisfactory on the conventional level. But it's not necessary because conventions are not perfect. They never will be. But how to use conventions, this develops the wisdom faculty. And that's what our society needs more than anything, needs wisdom. This is what we lack so much in, in the society in general now, the world over. Wise human beings are, are difficult to find. Because it's not been a goal for people's lives. Wisdom is not the goal of our culture. It's material wealth. You know, we're living at a time that's very materialistic and its goals are, are not very high. Getting what one wants and... Uh, raising the standard and then we have altruistic goals about you know ending poverty nobody's really that interested except the poor because so much of the money goes to weapons and things like that rather than towards poverty and when you're in a wealthy country like this you don't want to give up that much for those poor people You know, the, as much as we might be altruistic about wanting to help the poor, if it, if it comes too close to us having to give up anything, 
then suddenly we, we can forget about our altruism. Because the Sakyaditi is very unstable, isn't it? We can be high-minded and then the next moment just be totally self-centered until we understand the conditioned realm and free ourselves from operating only from that perspective, from Sakyaditi, Silabhata Bharamasa, Vichikicca. What you're doing here is really working, it can be seen as a bodhisattva practice. It's not for me to become enlightened and the heck with the rest of you. I've got it, I don't care what happens to you. <laughs> and that's still Sakyaditi, isn't it? Yeah, I'm going to get out of this samsara. What you do, I don't, it's none of my business. That's samsara. Sakyaditi again. There's no way you can win on that level of just practicing for your own self-benefit. It's through seeing through, recognizing the self as that in its good aspects and, and bad aspects and neutral aspects. Knowing condition phenomena, sape sankarani cha, sape tamanata, then, then you have learned what you need to learn as a human individual, human being. This is the perfection. To me, this is the perfection 